This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9am, only on 101.9 High FM. Good morning, and this is indeed Brooke Spector, and we are live in the deep dive. But today we're in a restaurant because the nemesis of our universe is that our neighborhood was suddenly attacked by load shedding. So we had to decamp quickly and move to a local restaurant where they have a generator and Wi-Fi. So here we are, and I hope everything works and we all stay together till the end of this. Uh, today we're very, very pleased to have a special guest, uh, Jackie Silliers, who I've known for Oh, gosh, something like 30 years now, I think, when he first established the Institute for Security Studies back in 1991, was it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, 1991, you have a good memory. And he was just getting started, and his uh, objective, I think, was, a, was an independent think tank that wasn't beholden to a political party or a particular political uh, ideology, uh, but analyzing the then serious consequences of uh, what might happen in the future of our country. Uh, and over time, he's run this institute. Now he's no longer the president or the CEO or the, the king, uh, but he still writes uh, frequently. Uh, he participates in seminars, conferences, uh, and the national public discussion. And ISS has spread its wings. You, you now have branches not only in South Africa, but also in uh, Addis Ababa, in Ethiopia, and in Dakar. Am I correct? Uh, yes, and in Nairobi. And Nairobi. Okay, so you have, it, it's taking over. There, <laughs> there is an ISS branch near you, almost no matter where you are now. Um, but one of the things that uh, Jackie has spent a lot of time on in, in a number of books and articles and public presentations uh, are the various possible trajectories for the national for the national uh, circumstance. Uh, and I think over time he has settled on the, the most likely trajectory, something he called Bafana Bafana, after the uh, reg the regularly underperforming national soccer football team, which is probably better than giraffe, but not as good as, as flying high. And there, it, of course, is part of the problem. And I think it's particularly appropriate to talk with him today because the government has just received the last volume of the so-called Zondo Commission report, which goes into exhaustive detail over national failings and the governance of any number of state and state and state-owned enterprise institutions, as well as the possible correctives to this. Jackie, welcome, and I'm glad that you could join us today. Uh, thanks, Brooks. It's a bit difficult to hear you, but um, I, I do manage. Yeah, I think maybe just try and do something about the uh, there's a lot of background noise, but thanks for inviting me. Yes, I've been, um, uh, in actual fact, on Wednesday, we launched a massive website on the long-term future of Africa, which includes forecasts on South Africa. It's much more data-driven than the political forecasts than we've, that we've done. So we've also been doing quite a bit of that. So we can now provide forecasts uh, for every African country um, over the long term. 
but uh, I've been also updating the forecasts on South Africa. And as you say, the uh, most likely forecast I've called Bafana Bafana after our uh, perennial underperforming national soccer team, which is where we, we, we don't really play as a team. Uh, we sort of uh, don't really have a clear coach. And, and yeah, we're not very fit um, and we're not sure of the rules of the game. With that, everything's fine. <laughs> Apart from that, everything's fine. And that's very clear, by the way. Uh, you're very clear now. Yeah. So uh, I've been doing some updating of those forecasts. Um, uh, there are an actual fact in the scenarios that I've published, there are an actual fact four forecasts. I'll sort of, uh, the one is Bafana Bafana, which is the most likely muddling along scenario. Then there's Tumamina, which is where a resurgence in the ANC, Ramaphosa wins decisively. In, uh, in the December elections and does well going forward. And then there's nation divide. Then, then the next two scenarios are where Ramaphosa, because of Ramap of the Arthur Fraser um, accusations, of steps down ahead of the December elections. Um, and therefore, what happens is that in the December ANC elections, an RET candidate uh, wins, and the ANC support plummets. And that leads to one of two outcomes. The one is nation divided, which is where the ANC just does very badly and South Africa struggles and um, opposition parties don't really come together to oppose the ANC. And the final scenario, which is where Ramaphosa, remember, does not stand, is called Mandela Magic. And this is where after, um, let's say, Sisulu is elected as president of the ANC or Ace Magashule or some other well-known South African criminal personality. The um, uh, Ramaphosa comes back into the political scene and launches his own new party. And he uh, and then eventually emerges as president of South Africa under a no co new coalition. And, uh, the term nation divided, uh, sorry, the term Mandela magic reflects a South Africa that returns to a South Africa that is now governed by a coalition of parties, but that returns to the vision of a country that is governed for all South Africans and not only in, in the interest of a small, narrow bourgeoisie of ANC leaders uh, who more or less govern for their own pocket. So those are the kind of four scenarios, but you're right that the Bafana Bafana muddling along when Ramaphosa wins in December of this year at the elections, but narrowly, and the ANC remains divided, and we continue to sort of muddle along. That's probably the most likely. That's the political uh, dimension of this, but necessarily any political direction, any one of your four scenarios, has, a, has an absolutely obvious and direct an important impact on the economics of the country as well. And if we yeah. end up, if we end up with, as you call it, Bafana, Bafana, everybody cheering for it, but no goals, uh, what's the effect? What are the ramifications on the economic performance? Okay, so our forecast of South Africa's average growth, growth rate out till 2029 so uh, the reason we have elections 2024, elections 2029 is about 2.4%. Now that is, um, that means we, we muddle along. What South Africa needs, and you remember the National Development Plan spoke of a, a growth target of 5.4%. So our, the Bafana Bafana, the muddling along growth forecast of about 2.4% means things improve, improve, but very, very slowly. 
what we think is possible in South Africa, average, is getting to about 3.4% by 2029, which is uh, better, um, but with compound interest, uh, things change quite a lot. So that's sort of our, uh, our, the, the, the range of our economic forecasts um, out till 2029, 2.4% uh, or uh, about 3.4%, a percentage point difference between those two forecasts. You're listening to The Deep Dive with me, Brooke Spector, and my special guest, Jackie Silliers of the Institute for Security Studies. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back with Jackie Silliers of the Institute for Security Studies, and we've been talking about muddling through and uh, his most likely projection remains the Bafana Bafana version, which is lots of lots of running and lots of kicking and not a lot of not a lot of goals being scored. And then when I ask about the economic dimension of this, he refers us to the National Development Plan. Uh, that massive volume. I have a copy of it in my house somewhere on. Uh, <laughs> On a, on a DVD. I don't have the print version. I have the D DVD version. Uh, I remember receiving it back in, what, uh, 2013 or something like that. Correct, uh, correct. And reading it and looking at it and saying, if only, and then all yeah. the way through it going, if only, and if only, and if only. But one yeah. of the things that I noticed about that original document and succeeding discussions is that it talks a great deal about improving the quality and performance of government management and government institutions yeah. and de delivering what we call services. But it speaks rather less to the question of improving what, is, what has been fundamental for all the so-called developmental states that have actually succeeded in East Asia and that's improving the quality of the of education for people. Yeah, yeah. And I, I Brooke, wonder. It's very, about it's very this. accurate. Yeah, you know, um, I do I do um, long term forecasting, uh, which is my day job. So I spend a lot of time looking at data, and um, you know the old adage that education is the the rising tide that lifts all boats. That is true, but it takes a tremendous amount of time. Now, if you compare South Africa's educational outcomes with that of other upper middle income countries, South Africa is one of seven upper middle income countries in Africa. We see that you see that the quantity of education in South Africa is quite good. What do I mean by quantity? It means the average years of education of adults. Um, but the quality of education in South Africa is very poor. Now, like with all things, Quant quality is more important than quantity. You can see that in the way South Africa is governed. We've got a tremendous amount of civil servants, civil servants, um, but uh, quality in South Africa is very low. And the same, that's particularly true for education. So um, South Africa does better than almost all other upper middle income countries in Africa on the quantity of education, the average years of education of adults. But when you look at the, quant at the quality of South Africa's education, we're not getting a return on our investment. We're spending quite a bit of money on education, but um, that does not translate into better quality of education. So the result of that 
is that um, South Africa does quite poorly and our forecasts uh, out, our forecasts generally are, are about 20 years into the future generally, is that um, South Africa is actually going to fall further and further behind the averages of uh, most other countries when it, comparable countries on the contribution that education makes to economic growth in, uh, in, in the country. So it, it's a really quite a concerning picture that we see when we speak about education. And of course, a lot of that has to do with uh, experiments like outcomes-based education, where we took um, examples from the most developed countries, uh, which by the way, they actually don't really apply themselves because it's experimental, and tried to apply them in South Africa, while at the same time, destroying um, our teacher education colleges and all of these kind of things in um, with what can only but can best be described as social experimentation with absolutely disastrous results in our educational uh, system. So really, um, we, we, we've, we're changing. We're now going back to um, vocational training as we should have done 10, 20 years ago, but we've lost about a generation. Uh, under the the absolutely abysmal management of the educational system. Well, one of the the numbers that uh, especially troubles me is a pure quanti quantitative measurement, and that's if you have a million people entering the educational system at the beginning of their lives, of that yeah. million, only about 400,000 will graduate from high school, and of that 400,000, only about 12% will enter universities. And of that 12% of that 400,000, perhaps only about half of those will actually graduate from a university yeah. or a tech, technical university. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very nice crisp summary of the challenges that face, that face us. And so we have, so we, we conceptualize education as, well, as a pipeline where people enter on the one side, um, uh, kids enter the educational pipeline on the one side, and then they exit on the other side, hopefully with some type of tertiary or other qualification. Now, the amount of leakage that we have in this pipeline in South Africa, which is what you refer to, is absolutely massive. And the irony is that um, people are exiting very often because of a poor quality of education and lack of a parental engagement and so on and so forth. But if you go to a country like Finland, which has got the best educational system in the world, it's almost a perfect pipeline. People enter on the one side of the pipeline when they probably in pre-primary and they exit on the other end of the pipeline, generally with a postgraduate qualification, not the kind of funnel that we see in South Africa that you are referring to. So we have a long, long way to go. And um, if we say that uh, economies are knowledge driven, the more knowledge you have in a society, the more rapidly you grow, South Africa is in trouble. If all of these facts are true, and i agree with you i'm sure that you know that the number may be off one way one percentage one way or the other uh, if all these are true why is it not being attacked at the highest level with the degree of alacrity and and energy that this problem merits well nothing in south africa actually seems to excite um, the governing party to really act it's not electricity it is not electricity deficit. It is not the collapse of the criminal justice system. We've just had the Zondu Commission of Inquiry, which has again produced what, what is it, 5,000 or 1,500 pages? I can't remember which it is exactly. 
a large um, pile. It's a large pile. And one would think that um, this would galvanize the, pro the fact that we for almost two decades have, electric have had electricity outages, that this would galvanize government into action. And certainly there is progress. But uh, government itself, particularly the Jacob Zuma administration, uh, has undone the years of progress that we saw under Mandela and Thabo Mbeki. And uh, Ramaphosa is trying to fix that. But it's, you know, I, I wrote about this. It's like a snail trapped in Greece. Things move exceptionally slowly in South Africa. And um, we, we just, this just doesn't seem to be any sense of prioritization and any sense of urgency. So everything is a priority and that means nothing gets done. And we have a, a large bloated uh, bureaucracy. Um, most of them who are, um, uh, and increasingly that is the ANC support base. And then you have a large majority of South Africans, 20 million who are dependent upon social grants. And um, therefore you are trapped in an economy that spends on consumption and spends very little on investing in knowledge capital, in investing in infrastructure, the things that make an economy grow. What we do is we have all kinds of pressure to increase the consumption expenditure. The latest is to go for, for a so-called big, where everybody gets a, a grant, which is fine, but that means that you are not investing in research and development, in manufacturing, in building stuff that actually improves the productivity of your economy. And these are the, uh, this is the perennial problem that South Africa faces. You only have to drive down streets in what is left of our urban infrastructure to see the potholes and the poor lack of maintenance uh, that, is, that is the result of uh, not only of corruption and poor governance, but of a, of a, a, a government that uh, prioritizes consumption spending above investment in capital goods, in knowledge that uh, drive growth. Sorry, you're still there. I'm here. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, your, your picture and voice went out of sync for a second. And oh, I wasn't oh sure okay. sorry, Brooks. Yeah, no, no, I'm uh, I'm actually in Sweden, to be to be uh, very precise. Oh. So I've got a nice warm <laughs> okay. summer. I'm looking out at the blue skies, and it, uh, the, it was light at about 4 o'clock this morning, and I, I fled to escape the South African winter, and I'll be back on the 6th of August when the when it's starting to become uh, autumn, uh, sorry, um, spring. Spring, when the green shoots just begin to start. Um, yes. I, I want to I, I I, I turn your attention to a comparative. Now you've alluded to it by comparing the country uh, to Finland in educational terms. I, I confess I'm a big fan of the idea of the developmental state, mm. but I am deeply concerned with the lack of understanding of what that implies among many people here who use the term rather loosely and glibly and say that they wish to turn the country into a giant developmental state, etc., etc. I spent a lot of time in East Asia and Southeast Asia, and I had chances to watch uh, the mother of all developmental states, Japan, as the model for this as well as the four little dragons, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and some of the other rising Southeast Asian nations like Malaysia and Indonesia. 
And they all, one way or another, adopt the idea and the ethos of a developmental state. But it seemed to me that the characteristic that was crucial in all of these cases, well, two characteristics really, uh, was a competent bureaucracy that knew what it was supposed to do and how to carry it out, and a willingness on the part of the bureaucracy to work closely, closely as possible in many cases, with business to create the jobs that are necessary to absorb the people entering the labor force, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those two things seem to be curiously less than obvious in this country, despite our yeah. uh, our yeah. allegiance to the developmental state as a concept. Yeah, no, ex exactly. Um, we Our understanding of a developmental state is simply many, many civil servants. And it's very different to uh, the kind of commitment that you see in, uh, in, in the countries that you just mentioned, China, the Asian tigers, Japan, and so on. So there isn't an understanding that, for example, the Chinese model that the government loves to quote an authoritarian developmental model, which is true of many of the, it's, it's important to remember that many of your Asian tigers uh, grew as uh, authoritarian states until such time as economic development allowed them to democratize. Now, of course, we face the challenge, we have to both democratize and grow at the same time, which is very difficult. But the, the, the commitment towards um, management, competence, excellence, we don't see in South Africa. What we see is a civil service which is basically voting fodder uh, and for cadre deployment that have very little competence generally. Now, that's a, you know, it's, it's a legacy problem. That's where we came from. We haven't spent, uh, the, the National Party didn't spend on, on, on black education. The ANC, when it came in, made a huge effort uh, to spend. And in the initial 10, 12 years, it did very well in delivery of education, water, sanitation, housing, and all kinds of stuff. But uh, uh, then the wheels came off. And the wheels came off not only because of Jacob Zuma, but because of the fact that the ANC um, increasingly started to become a black nationalist party instead of a broad, stepped away from its inclusive, non-racial approach. And it has, um, the, the result of that is that it, it, it now finds itself trapped in a situation where the rules and the regulations that is brought on board uh, to manage this economy and corruption stifles any idea of entrepreneurship. It stifles any idea of building a, a high growth economy. So we have an economy where every item is regulated um, but uh, there is absolutely no entrepreneurialism. One of the reasons why we have such high levels of xenophobia in South Africa is because poor people in South Africa expect the state to help them, whereas poor people in uh, in China and the Asia, many of the Asian tiger countries are encouraged to become independent of the state, uh, which is a very different mindset to what we have in, in South Africa. Now, if everything that we've said about the patient is true and, and poor patients lying on the table, uh, what medicine do you prescribe to get us out of this, this funk, to get us out of this mess and move yeah. to one of your better scenarios? You know, the, the, we cannot escape that what South Africa faces is a deep political challenge. It is today the 
I would say the ANC has, without any doubt, become the largest, not only the ANC, but largely it's the dominant party, is the is South Africa's biggest problem. It, it is, um, it's a, um, a party that, in a, in a large sense, is anti-developmental. It believes in a large state, but an incompetent state. A state, it doesn't believe in incompetence, but, but it believes that uh, growing the size of the bureaucracy and that the private sector is there is something uh, to exploit. It's not a partner. And it's generally, um, listen to ANC, uh, senior ANC people, there's still a great degree of hostility towards us. So first point I'm making is that ultimately, this is, th there are only two options. The one is the intense reform of the ANC, turnaround of the ANC, which is what Ramaphosa is trying to do. I'm not sure if that is possible. The second is real competitive multi-party democracy in South Africa, where the ANC is one of the parties that govern South Africa. And um, these are sort of scenarios that we've developed that we call Mandela Magic, uh, Nation Divided, and Tumamina as uh, three examples of that. Hold that thought for just a minute. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are indeed back live in the deep dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and my special guest today is Dr. Jackie Sillier, African analyst, founder of the Institute for Security Studies, longtime head of that institution, and now it's it's growing. It has children all over Africa studying uh, issues and concerns, offices in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in Senegal. I guess eventually we'll have 54 offices scattered across the country, across the continent. And I, I wish, I wish. I think that's uh, maybe a little bit beyond our ability. But uh, yeah, we've certainly grown. We're one of the largest independent institutes on the continent. Um, certainly the largest independent institute that deals with broad, broad human security issues. I want to turn our conversation. We've been looking inwardly for the most part. How, uh, what are the circumstances of South Africa's uh, slow growth trap and why it is the way it is and how difficult it is to get out of it. But I want you, because I know you travel a bit and you are obviously in Sweden now and you follow international views on South Africa rather carefully. Uh, the circumstances that you have outlined, how do foreigners who are careful observers of this country what do they think about what is happening or not happening? Well, it depends, of course, on, on, on who the foreigners are. I think that generally um, in, in the so-called West, uh, there is a degree of disappointment um, and, and increasingly a degree of, of uh, irritation and sometimes alarm about um, uh, South Africa's ideological orientation. Um, and, um, and whereas for many years, we still have considerable support in a, num a number of European uh, and other countries, but there is concern about the direction that South Africa has gotten because our economy, um, we are, uh, the China has become our largest trading partner, but Europe remains um, the, much, the much larger investor in South Africa. And South Africa politically just seen that President Ramaphosa is uh, at, the, at the BRIC summit or is attending the BRIC summit in, in China virtually. And ideologically, the governing party very closely aligns itself with countries like Cuba, China, 
to an extent Russia and so on. And this does not go well with some of our major trading partners. This does not just mean that South Africa should uh, align itself with with the West. I think that um, American and uh, and other intervention in Africa and the challenges that we've seen around there and that the um, uh, example of the Trump administration means that there is very little example. But uh, uh, South Africa finds itself, it, it thinks that it, that it has friends within the BRICS and uh, its relationship with the BRICS is as um, commercial as in any other relationship. Uh, countries pursue their own interests and that's what South Africa should do. What South Africa often does, it, um, and Cuba is the best example, um, it uh, seems to be pursuing policies based on uh, uh, one of ideological um, identification and history instead of what is in the best interests of South Africa. What South Africa needs to do, irrespective of which other country we are speaking about, is we need to get the economy going. We need to pursue our interests in Southern Africa and our trade, best trade interests. And a lot of those interests are, uh, are Chinese, but China is also our major competitor in Southern Africa, particularly for manufactured goods. Our South Africa's destiny, if I can put it this way, our trading opportunities all lie in Africa. And that is where our major focus should be. Stability, trade, and growth in Southern Africa. It's the one region that we have uh, um, a competitive advantage in. So um, many issues around South Africa's foreign policy identity and, and many concerns and a degree of confusion. I don't think anybody could really explain to you what uh, South Africa's real, yeah, real policies are with regard to its foreign intervention. Um, it seems to be solidarity when it comes to Cuba. Um, it seems to be anti-Western in many, many instances, almost a knee-jerk reaction, which comes from the ANC's Liberation Party credentials. But uh, I, I think we should be going where our commercial interests show us to go. A couple of years ago, I looked at the, the ANC's party foreign policy oh, yes. statement. I, I'm not sure what was the term of art for that thing. The policy declaration, I guess. And I remember it. I, I also looked at the, uh, the one that came out of DERCO, the Department of National Relations and Cooperation, and they were obviously rather closely aligned. But the thing that the two items that struck me as curious, there was a lot of attention, a lot of detail on dealings with the Sahrawi People's Republic or uh, Liberation yeah. Movement in Western Sahara, a significant amount of energy and, and words dedicated to Palestine and Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And about a paragraph and a half dedicated dedicated to economics and trade. Yeah. Exactly. That summarizes the problem. Um, we get tremendously excited about Palestine and about uh, Western Sahara, but um, we don't have any economic and other interests, and we have absolutely zero influence on these. Um, but we will not say anything about what's happening in, you know, Eswatini or Zimbabwe. We will rush to solidarity with uh, the dictators that run those two countries. And uh, this is the, the challenge that we face. It, it's the problem within the agency and externally. And that is that solidarity, liberation era solidarity trumps everything. 
So if you're an ANC cadre, you can get away with anything. If you are a, uh, somehow anti-Western, um, you um, and, and if you are somehow linked to uh, some kind of anti-colonial struggle, those are your credentials. And that that's not good enough for a country that aspires to uh, improve the livelihoods of its citizens and that wants to grow. We we need um, we need to modernize. We need to wake up and smell the coffee wherever you are. I know you can smell the coffee, but in your in the restaurant, but uh, that's a big issue. <laughs> One of uh, I'm glad you mentioned the the BRICS meeting, uh, the virtual BRICS meeting, because. The justification that I read for being for South Africa feeling like it should be so closely identified with its four other members was that the uh, the large amount of trade with China and my rejoinder to that is always I don't really think that BRICS membership an organization after all that has no secretariat and no uh, no formal organized ongoing. Uh, official structure, Chinese trade with South Africa would be where it is pretty much regardless of whether BRICS existed or not, coming out of Jim O'Neill's idea at uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, oh, the, you know, what, 20 years ago. And I, I think what this means is there's a, there, there's a fundamental lack of understanding of cause and effect within government circles about what constitutes the drivers for trade. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And I think you're 100%. I mean, what BRICS did is it levered South Africa into a league where we, where we would not be. Um, and that is true. I'll stop. I see you need to have taken ad break. Yes, I do. I mean, we have to pay the bills. We have to give the sponsors their due. This is the Deep Dive with Brooks Spector. Starting. And we are back for our wrap-up. This is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive, and we have been speaking with Dr. Jackie Silliers, African analyst, as it says, and founder of the Institute for Security Studies. He's no longer the CEO, but he still writes prolifically, speaks often, joins conferences, thinks deeply, and is one of the premier analysts of our current circumstances and future prospects. It's been a pleasure to have you on air today with deep dive and look forward to speaking with you again in the future brooks thanks very much a great pleasure to be with you good luck have another cup of coffee and have breakfast <laughs> and have have a safe trip back you take care of yourself bye-bye thanks brooks this thank has been, you for the interview this has been this has been brooks specter with the deep dive at high fm we look forward to having you join us again next week at nine o'clock in the morning. And hopefully I'll be back in my normal space rather than a table at a restaurant.